0: Hey, how's it going? Welcome back to the Endpoem Podcast, a show where I sit down with the folks who make video games. I'm Alex James Kane, author of the Boss Fight book's entry on Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. I've published some other fun stuff recently. I reviewed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre game for RogerEbert.com, which was a dream come true for me. I also did a 5,000-word feature on the evolution of Bethesda games for IGN, my first byline there. Uh, so we're very grateful to Matt Kim for asking me to do that. That also got turned into a 30-minute documentary you can find on their YouTube channel. And there's a book called Land Party coming out soon, sort of a visual history of the Land Party era of multiplayer gaming. I contributed a short piece of memoir for that about playing Halo 2 with my high school buddies, so maybe check it out if you're into video game history. My guest today is Zolivir Nelson Jr., He's a writer-turned-game-designer-turned-entrepreneur and occasional voice actor. A very busy guy. He started out making some fun little Twine games and has since gone on to do projects like We Are the Caretakers, Hypnospace Outlaw, Skatebird, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator, Sunshine Shuffle, which I loved, Stranger Things VR game and now the highly anticipated El Paso Elsewhere, which launches Tuesday, September 26th on Steam and Xbox. We had a really fun chat about his career trajectory as well as some of the philosophy behind his studio, Strange Scaffold. Thanks so much for listening. Here's me talking to Zolivir. What would drew you to the, the vampire angle? Have you talked about that? I... I haven't talked about that, I think. No. I mean, when you when you open up, like, the sort of supernatural can of worms, you get all these, like, fun things that you can play with, but there's something really potent about uh, vampires and, and that sort of metaphor, right? Uh, especially, like, this time in history and things. So,
1: vampires are really interesting in how our perspective has also evolved around them over time. Any supernatural creature ends up getting distorted through the lens of the society that's introduced in to reflect the anxieties, the fears, the priorities, the most seductive elements of a given period. So whether it's how Frankenstein has changed over time, including when we made him hot and part of a cinematic universe, vampires and how they've changed over time are Arthur, Arthurian legend and it's different distortions. What a haunted suit of armor means in Scooby-Doo in the seventies versus in an a 24 movie in the 2020s is a fascinating shift. So a lot of El Paso elsewhere is about confronting that evolution of mythology head on on the human level the very basic pitch of the story is that being in a relationship with the lord of the vampires is going to fuck you up uh but on the wider span of lore plot and mythology as you go through the game and you're at first encountering vampires with bandages and then you're encountering vampires that don't have bandages anymore when you encounter these we call them uh damned brides uh these damned brides who are summoning forces from elsewhere and firing them at you uh the idea of where that story even comes from and how it's changed over time both the player and the player character have the ability to process that and deal with that mystery in real time, as well as, you know, jump in slow motion and shoot them. So I'm incredibly excited by what it means to use vampires and consider where a vampire even comes from. Because if we have an ability to comment on both of those factors, we have an ability to unravel again on the personal human level that makes all this connect in the first place. Why we need these stories at all. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to watch a dude be sad? It turns out the appeal of noir is the pain of distance it's the pain of observation and for neo-noir which is where strange uh strange scaffold is going with el paso elsewhere neo-noir is about the pain of being so
0: close that it hurts that's a vampire baby interesting (laughs) with the elsewhere name that kind of implies this uh is it is it sort of the dark mirror world or something like that is that part of the pitch this like, okay, we're in the territory of the supernatural, or? It sounded cool. I can talk about philosophy
1: all day for all sorts of other elements of the game, but El Paso elsewhere, I was like, ooh, that's a good one. And that, that that's, that's just been the name ever since.
0: Yeah, it's just lyrical and awesome with the, the LL sound there. I love it. There's some great use of, you know, lighting and color and things like that, that uh, you know differentiate it from like Mad Max if that's kind of or Max Payne sorry if Max Payne is sort of the the touchstone for for kind of what the gameplay looks like you know that's sort of a black and white looking game in a lot of ways but but El Paso is very colorful right what were some of the creative influences that you thought about for that if any I'd say
1: the look of the game was, of course, heavily inspired by the early PS2 era. But we are looking at classic horror film. We're looking at Jalo horror with things like Suspiria. We're looking at even the engine of the game. It's the Unity HDRP branch, which is built for next gen ray traced <laughs> video games being already used on things like The Rising. And I'm strapping that fucking rocket engine to an early PS2 video game. So many of my games are defined by their fusion, by having an art direction and creative vision that is taking something that you've probably seen before, probably loved, like the concept of dogs, and then reflecting that through... A bunch of prisms until it becomes something new and delightful so a bunch of uh, a bunch of dogs becomes stock photos of dogs in an open world physics-based comedy adventure it shouldn't work but the loveliest magic trick in the world is making it work anyway so for el paso elsewhere looking at the really strong art direction that all of those games did use in the period, which is why we remember their visuals as being so much more high resolution than they were in reality and doing our own distinct neo-noir take on that space with the technology of today. I, Feel gratitude again that we get to explore this space and present something new in the foundation of things that people have loved because there's a danger there. Certainly, I it is my job and my honor and my curse to tank the responsibility of reading the comments for the rest of the team. Uh, I engage with all of the discourse of people who would just like us to make Max Payne again, please. But I'm desperately excited that for those who are open to something new and for those who are coming in wanting to be upset, frankly, that we get to say, yeah, the thing that you love existed. We're going to show you what it can
0: become next. Hmm. You've, uh, You've been doing some voiceover work for it, right? Yep, uh voicing the main character voice uh,
1: as well as additional things throughout the game, some of which I can talk about and some of which I can't.
0: Sure. How's that challenge been like sort of uh getting into that that mindset when you're sort of juggling so many other things like was that fun to kind of go off and and work outside your comfort zone a little bit and just get into a character for a while or I think
1: I've learned a lot during this process and the amazing part of this is I was able to give myself a role of a lifetime. I knew I could do it. I knew I desperately wanted to do it in my head. I was like, I'll never get to actually do it though. Right. And I kicked that can over and said, no, actually, I'm going to provide myself the space to explore that. And that was partially a production consideration. We got our lead actor for quote-unquote free. And yeah. we could at any time, quote-unquote, just get some pickups. What I didn't account for was something that I'm calling time bubbles. There is an existential amount of time everything takes. So you can plan for how long the ta- the ta- task takes. You can plan for how long the task takes plus iteration. You can plan for how long the task takes... Plus iteration and contingencies, but then some things just take a while to come together. And you can't squeeze that to make it happen faster or even slower. It will just come when it comes. The time bubble for being the voice actor and the designer and the script and the the writer, each one of those is actually a separate time bubble. And thank God those time bubbles have not burst against each other. But realizing in this year in particular, as we've been gearing up for launch, oh, I didn't account for the fact that I would need to create space for myself as an actor in this dev process or that I run a studio. So quote unquote, just getting some pickups has to happen around pitches and discussions with platforms and freelance work. And coordinating the entire team. It is a privilege, but it's also an immense challenge that I would do again. But this time I would account for how much of the time might be spent being tired. Because all of those things require for their best outcome, not just focus, but space for living around them this script would have looked so different if I had written and completed it and locked it two years ago as opposed to it being three months of work spread out over four years but without that time uh, we don't get the really impressive statement of intent that El Paso elsewhere is today voice acting is great should have made space for myself, <laughs> should have known that I would need space for myself to be human and to fully be an actor alongside my other roles on the project.
0: And there's this like funny contradiction, right? That Like the more you do something and get sort of comfortable with it, if, if you do it all, like it actually takes longer somehow in some ways, right? Like, cause you, you're more aware of what you're doing. And so it's not just like, Oh, I'm going to sit down and like make something today and, and finish it. It's like, oh, that can be better because I now know some of these things that I was totally ignorant of, you know, a year ago or whatever. Right.
1: It It's why, again, I'm grateful that so much of the game has gotten locked in this last year because we've had yeah. three years to nail down our tools, to nail down the core of what we can express. And then one year to freaking just style out and build something that breaks ground i at the beginning of 2022 i threw away all of the script that we had up to that point and i wrote the initial portion of the new statement of intent and then left it until 2023 uh (laughs) and finished the script at that point we don't get space for doing that in a traditional dev cycle, not because we aren't spending the time on games. We're spending more time on games than ever. Three, Mm -hmm. four, five, six plus years. But we aren't giving people the existential space to grow and live and learn, especially on, say, other productions that allows that time to be one of percolation rather than pressure. If you're working on a AAA game that its dev cycle is going to take, say, five years. You're going to write a joke today and it will get told three years from now. Uh, one of the most sobering things that was told to me by a AAA writer before I had worked in AAA myself was write a joke today and the punchline gets told three, two years from now. Is it still funny? And that made me... Really in that moment go down the brain tunnel of oh gosh, that's how long these games take. Entire games. Grand Theft Auto 3 was built in two years. We went from Grand Theft Auto 2 to Grand Theft Auto 3 in two years. And now two years is the span of, say, this the script process for a game that will go on to be in development for another four. And when development is occurring under those conditions the space for people to grow and skill up and have this wide-ranging creative journey that you can follow is lost in the process. And I think sometimes about how different my career would look if a few years ago, when I really wanted and needed it, if I would just gotten hired by Ubisoft and I'd gotten stuck in a cupboard working on Beyond Good and Evil 2 that team is making cool stuff from what it seems like they are sure still working on beyond good and evil too, but our dev cycles, this is starting to affect the indie part of the industry as well. Our dev cycles are just not built to accommodate people having long-term creative journeys that you can follow, especially across disparate projects. Our most prolific creators have often had decade plus careers and they still have maybe three or four games you can play on modern technology that represents their perspective. Compare that to film, compare that to music. It's a shocking gap. And I think it results in a lot of the stasis and relative exhaustion that you can feel in the medium right now.
0: Yeah. And then you see those horror stories of like, Oh, I got left out of the credits or they didn't credit me because I quit, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, wow. You know, when you're talking about those kinds of, yeah, four or five year projects, uh, that becomes really, really scary. Um, Like my whole sort of, when I was a full-time games journalist, you know, like that was five years and it's like, is that how long, like, Tears of the Kingdom took to make was probably that length of time? That's uh, pretty staggering. Um, you were a games journalist, right? I mean, that's kind of where you started in games. Is that right? Yeah. Games
1: journalist started at 12, pretending to be an adult to get my first jobs.
0: Oh, okay. So you, you were like a tween doing it. I was a tween. Amazing. Uh, I didn't realize I was a tween.
1: Games part. journalist is... Uh, the name of uh, a Goosebumps horror book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so you, at some point you have this this realization, right? Like, you know, I'm doing this because I want to make these things as opposed to just talking about them, right? Is that or was it a pretty gradual thing? I feel like one day I woke up and I was like, oh, I think I've been doing this for five years because I kind of want to make these one day. Did you have that moment?
1: No, I was going to leave
0: because oh, okay. the average
1: career length in games is still three to five years. Sure. So I had seen two waves of peer groups uh, and mentors and seeming paragons all come together and. Disappear off the face of the earth or crash and burn or turn into awful inhuman goblins on the internet. And (laughs) watching that happen, I said, okay, I'm becoming an adult now. I don't know if this is a place where I want to put my life. So I was a children's librarian. I was doing children's librarian stuff. I was... Doing it on a semi professional basis, even when I volunteered for a library, they're like, Hey, by the way, you're a volunteer. Okay. So don't, uh, don't, don't get too full of yourself. Don't try to do anything too big. I was handling people's social security numbers within a week. Right. <laughs> and I loved it. Not the handling of social security numbers. That was terrifying. I am loved being a part of the library, being a part of that community and relating to patrons, learning what they loved, uh, caring for them in an active way, starting to see the life cycle of a library where people, they're using it when they're in school and maybe they go away and they're mainly spending Netflix in their early 20s. But seeing even people within the same family be at different stages of library usage. Here's grandpa being taught how to use the internet or access as email. Here's someone being helped with reference in their teens or in their college years. Here's someone who's coming back with their kids and they're starting to use the library as a resource because they're having kids or because the world is on fire. Uh, It was less on fire at the time, but the world is Mm. on fire and they can't spend cash on a Kindle book. So they just want to see what the general book or the author is about. Libraries are one of the few eternal good resources we have in society. And I loved the job. It fit me like a glove. And I was said, I'm going to leave video games. But before I do, to put an end cap on my rock star games journalist youth, I'm going to make a video game and then walk away from this life. And I made my first game, All Hail the Spider God. And about 13 days, it was a Twine game. I said, oh, shit. I love this. I really <laughs> love this. I think I might want to spend my life doing this. Even now, the library calls to me. But when if if we're speaking about caring for and loving a community and providing it with an institutional knowledge base and with resources and with discussion, I still do that. I just now do it within the medium of the games I make and speaking very enthusiastically about the work of my peers and predecessors in this beautiful, confusing, enraging and necessary artistic medium. I ended up here by accident and I couldn't be more grateful.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, actually I found and played spider God, um, like a week ago or a week, two weeks ago, whenever I, I finished Sunshine Shuffle and I was like, oh, I should see like, you know, what else you've done that I can quickly play in time for the interview. And, uh, and I was like, oh, this is cool. This is clearly like an old early project that you did, you know? And uh, yeah, I had a similar experience with Twine where I, I made it a tiny little silly Twine game in a day like a year ago. And it was like, Oh man, like Twine is cool. Uh I wanna do more of this and uh and Spider God was was very colorful and it kind of the way you used the uh, sort of keyword system, right, to kind of map it out and, and have it be that sort of uh you know, you're not just clicking like I wanna say this or I wanna do this, but you've got the the noun over here that I can click on and really playing with with what Twine can do is fun. I, I took the sort of the pun route, you know, that sort of like the, the comedy, the comedy route through the game. So I probably need to play through it again. But uh are you still are your feelings about twine that it's still like a vital thing that people should do as like a, a way to, to to try game design? Do you think it's still as vital as it was?
1: I think twine is a tool like anything else and My number one recommendation to anyone is, for the love of God, don't commit your life, your education, your experience, your vitality to anything before you have an ability to try it first. So whether it's Twine, which if you've been writing on the Internet or, you know, basic CSS slash HTML, even just the ability to make something bold or italic with little tags, Twine is probably in your wheelhouse. If what you've got is pen and paper, and you can design a board game or a card game, making something from beginning to end and then releasing it to the world is the definition point at which I see a lot of people figure out whether or not they want to make a game. And the terrifying thing that is human tendency, is, oh, I want to make, like, the game I really want to make, though. I want to make the big thing. People jump right into the deep end with a game and then don't get to understand that they don't like making games until three to five years down the line and then go, (laughs) oh, gosh. Now I have to figure out who I am next. We see this particularly with indie development as well, where people aren't told that independent game development is not just directing a game with your own vision. It is essentially managing a small business. If you want to manage a small business, if you want to go through the process of admin around a video game, which a publisher, that they don't take that off your back, by the way. They're another piece of dealing with being an independent business that's working with a much larger business. If anything, you've done uh, a semi-merger. This is not uh, a reduction of complication. You still have to give the sign off on marketing and strategy, and you've received an offer, or you need to position a demo for biz dev. You just are one step removed. People enter into independent development, whether they're in AAA previously or not and then they work on a big thing they push that ball forward three to five years later they say gosh I hated that I should have just worked at Blizzard or Respawn or Microsoft on a cool thing that people would play I know people who have shipped successful indie games that discovered they didn't want to make indie games after making an indie game, but it took them three years to figure that out. I, in all arenas, want people to have the ability to discover things about their creative process and their needs as human beings as soon as possible, because I see all of the space for that being cut out. People say on the double-A and triple-A side, used to, say on licensed games, cut their teeth. Brendan Chung, Blendo Games, started out working on licensed games you've probably never heard of. Mike Bithell was doing Spongebob shit. And And those Spongebob games got played. He got shipping experience. Mike Bithell doesn't come out of nowhere. Which, by the way, Bethel Games just put out Banished Vault. Congratulations to them. Little plug of uh, Friends of the Studio. But he didn't come out of nowhere. He had the ability to figure out some stuff about himself as a designer working on other things. And the zero-sum game of game development and the scale of it escalating on every area. Something doesn't have to be large for it to be a big game it doesn't have to be large for it to be significant and when we conflate those two things the space for people to learn what they need and how they need it becomes increasingly terrifyingly small
0: yeah i've uh it's funny i think about like night in the woods came out in 2017 and i've been like replaying and thinking about that game like ever since but you know, I, I know friends who sort of speed ran the game in three hours and then never thought about it again. So it's kind of funny how, you know, yeah, like not every game needs to be like Red Dead Redemption, but also there's sort of, there's so many different avenues into what the project can be, right? Like something where, you know, there's some mechanics, there's narrative and there's collectibles. Um I, I feel like, indie games and the sort of yeah you use the the double a term like they're getting really good at, at sort of adding all those different little uh elements right that kind of your 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 play time and what you get out of a, a piece of art like you have some options there right
1: the cost is a lot of those indie games are taking five years to make yeah which is the thing that Gets to me having been here long enough to remember when that wasn't the case, when an average indie game budget was 150,000 instead of one to three million, where the space for getting funding beneath that level is increasingly small. Mm. I would say it is more likely all the developers I speak to regardless of their individual level, is dealing with the impact of escalation on their tier of development. So in indie, I'm sitting in conversations and I hear people just talking about like, yeah, I have to figure out how to pump up my budget by another $400,000 to make people believe that the game will be large enough to be significant, polished enough to be important, meaningful, necessary. And when that is the prism through which we see art, we remove the ability to get, we remove the ability to get all sorts of things that can only be made at a smaller scale. There's ga- There's movies that if you put another $10 million into them, they will become worse. We understand this for music. If you put in, if you change who the producer is, or if you add this escalation of budget or polish, it sometimes ruins a band's sound. And games has not absorbed that as a lesson. And until we do, we're going to keep running into issues where we say, man, there's an entire genre that died. Why did it die? It's because it worked really well at the $5 million budget range, but you can't fund a game of that genre at $5 million anymore. You can only fund it at $20 million. and It's so niche that it actually wouldn't be profitable anymore at that level anyway, even if it did get funded. We're ending up right now with the most expensive monuments to games that should be profitable and will never be in all kinds of genres and that fascinates me because precision not scale is the future of creativity and we have more abilities to be precise than ever
0: yeah it's you see like in the the triple space you see something like anthem just sort of immediately abandoned and then in the the so-called indie space you have no man's sky stretching across a decade of of iteration it's it's very bizarre how we kind of you know nothing is recognizable past a certain point it's like (laughs) you know um the game that should get iterated on and updated for a decade does not because you know the business model is is broken in that specific way and then on the other end you have these. Yeah, sort of scope creep nightmares that you're talking about, too. Is, uh... And speaking of No Man's Sky,
1: the idea of how different that project would be if, again, it had another $10 million in budget and it was supposed to be what we now know of No Man's Sky, but at launch. Mm-hmm. They've had the ability to iterate because of community feedback. They've had the ability to alter that game. They had the ability to ship it, first of all, and then to alter it because when it came out, as much as there was a mixed reception, it made a buttload of money. They were able to take what could fund an indie studio for several years, and they were able to take several years literally rebuilding, remodeling No Man's Sky, and as that made exponentially more money, continuing to invest that, not just into the projects at the studio... But into no man's sky specifically until it becomes a juggernaut of scale and any game that looks like no man's sky is not being compared with no man's sky at launch it's being compared with no man's sky now and that's context collapse anthem yeah. wasn't trying to be destiny year one yeah. or wasn't allowed to be destiny year one yeah. it had to compete with destiny year five And when we remove all context from how we discuss games and also how we build them, that results in the same genre of video games, say a top-down Hotline Miami-like. That game is five times more expensive today, both because of arbitrary pressures and perception of, if we really want this to make an impact, it needs to be five times more expensive, but also because now that Hotline Miami and games like it exist and have had the ability to get updated, and because we've removed consciously from games discussion all the context markers that we use in other mediums to understand what they're doing, how they did it, and how we should evaluate it, that is the barrier of entry to anything. Anything trying to do uh, a top-down roguelike like Hades I, cool boy. I, I I wouldn't want to be in their position because they're yeah. being compared with Hades and the games like Hades as they now exist, rather than at their inception.
0: Yeah, Hades was an early access. We we mm-hmm. don't talk about that. True. Yeah, yeah. That's a the whole thing too. Is like games are in early access for years, and then they they then they launch, and yeah, it's like people don't really get in on the early access. So it's, uh yeah, it, it becomes a whole different game by the time that it, it's, you know, oh, it's suddenly popular, but it, it's not really happening overnight that way.
1: Or we forget that they were Kickstarter games. Like, right. There yeah. are several Kickstarter games that people don't remember were Kickstarter games because retroactively the story becomes, oh, they were just, that was just a successful game, right? that just launched and it had instantly a community? No. That was on Kickstarter. And we rewrite stories to fit convenient shapes later. So Hollow Knight and Night in the Woods and Undertale and FTL and Divinity Original Sin and Darkest Dungeon. And I'm just looking through a list of things. and I'm just looking at a list of how many of these games represented uh, big swings on kickstarter at the time even during my time of working in the industry and i don't hear them spoken about as kickstarter games i don't hear shovel knight spoken about as a kickstarter success story or a kickstarter story at all because its story has somehow quote-unquote transcended that foundation and i think the transcendence process where we in hindsight rewrite the stories of video games to assume Shapes that we respect, which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a uh, intense propagation and mitigation of what actually occurred. It is poisoning the well and, and to a degree our ability to make certain video
0: games. Hmm. you think you think Kickstarter has just kind of got a bad connotation now to some extent because of like certain horror stories or or is it the fact that like bigger companies will use it as well? I mean, like Obsidian I think has kickstarted games even and you know, things like uh that sort of come from like AAA branding, but they're sort of like a smaller project on the side and things like that.
1: Kickstarter early access even the launch version of a video game. We're always looking at games in their current context and shortcutting all of the factors that resulted in that context. And when we do that, we do ourselves a disservice. We do starting devs a disservice. And it also means we can't properly narrativize our own medium. What is the story of Hitman and IO Interactive? if we go by the way games typically talks about itself, even for a project with so much history and so many things that have gone into the iteration and foundation of what's now Hitman World of Assassination, we end up producing a world where we can't, unlike film and music and literature and all these other artistic mediums, we don't get to properly evaluate stories and have repeatable success. Everything is an anomaly. Everything is the best of its kind or the worst of its kind. And what the definition is for best and worst changes by the day. Everyone I know is tired and scared and hoping that they roll the dice, even if they work for a very large company on a very large project, to be received with grace when they put out the result of their years of labor into the world. This isn't a boo-hoo poor creator story that I'm telling. It's more so that when we remove these context markers, even as an audience, it means that we are invisibly being having game genres taken away from us. We're having game genres and forms of video games that we've loved and game stories and game structures. Everyone's bemoaning the battle pass right now, but the battle pass emerged because of systemic factors. And if we change the systemic factors, even for a single project, we get a different kind of game. And I want players to have the ability to advocate for themselves effectively again. Because we are still stuck in the marketing mindset of blast processing. Don't ask what it is. It's just the best new thing. And when we do that, yeah, we do our past, our present, and our future disservice. Players deserve better games. And they get those games if those games are designed, developed, from the ground up, from the business case, produced in a way that is reasonable, sustainable, and human-centric.
0: And you get to, I mean, you do these side projects like Sunshine Shuffle. Is that a way to kind of sort of sidestep the enormity of something like El Paso elsewhere and kind of say, okay, I need to just not think about that for a while. I want to do something that's a little more, you know, it's like a poker game with some narrative and like, you know, the sort of adorable art direction, you know, but it's something that you can play through and you know, four or five hours, which is uh, great. Uh, You know, how do you, how does that project come about? Like, I want to make something fun with some friends that uh, takes less time to do. Is that? That's
1: one of the longest running dev cycles in Strange Scaffold history. So I wish it was that way. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. The
1: problem was we talked to a lot of Telltale people on starting that project about how you pull off A Poker Night at the Inventory. And they told us how you pull off a Poker Night of the Inventory. What they didn't tell us is that you shouldn't pull off a Poker Night at the Inventory. Every person who touched Poker Night at the Inventory 1 and 2, it's a badge of pride, it is a battle scar slash eternal wound which will never lose its sting. Or both. They just neglected to tell us that part. So, the three month projects took about three years altogether and a little, yeah, a little bit more than two and a half. And that was not the intention, but it is the strange scaffold process where when we do develop a game from beginning to end, the point is not to make a morsel in between larger things. It is what time does the game need? How do we develop this thing precisely? Almost every game with Sunshine Shuffle and a couple of other notable exceptions that Strange Scaffold is built has been exactly what we wanted it to be. And that launch, we actually run into the odd circumstance of, oh, wait, we shipped according to our general timeline and we shipped on budget and the game is complete in what we wanted it to be at launch. We don't have anything to add in post launch. Space Warlord, we hit the existential crisis, especially when it was successful, of if we add more to the game, the game gets worse. So it only has one additional organ added in the post-launch cycle, and we focused on quests on and on events and other systemic things to round out that experience. But we realized the game was what we wanted it to be at launch. It was a complete video game. So because of the systems involved if you added even one more organ that reduced the chances of receiving other organs and fulfilling your overall requests and of the game loop functioning. So we had to step away from the thing that would look good on a steam announcement or a PR thing of 15 new organs added to space world Organ in simulator. We came up with some new wild ones because it would have made the game worse. We've seen the, weird existential downside of building precisely where it means oh shoot okay i guess the game's just done now sorry slash not sorry we want to give every game the space that it needs to be the best version of itself no less and no more so that's what we do and because we work on multiple dev cycles simultaneously we get to share that knowledge between teams of shouldn't use this tech, shouldn't use this tech in this example. We should use this tech. We should use this everywhere if we can. Lessons that usually take three years to percolate and then you run into a new field of rakes next time. We get to learn at hyperspeed and then spread to all of our collaborators who in turn work work other places across the industry and spread those lessons elsewhere. We're creating a community of people learning and building things together precisely while be having the freedom to if everything falls apart walk away without putting their livelihood in danger that's a blessing and this year in particular i've been fighting a lot of voices who are trying to push me out of this blessed position people saying so what do you really want to make though I'm like, I want to make this in this way. I'm really proud of how it's, it's built. It's resilient. It's risk. Uh, it defrays risk for me and my partners. We can go and make a game for Meow Wolf on time and on budget. And now that exists at a real physical exhibition. And we can make a game with a six figure budget that's launching on PC and console this September. I'll pass it elsewhere. Wishlist it right now. We can do both of those things. And most people can't. And uh, there's been a lot of voices have been telling me okay so so like when do you grow up though and i've been challenging the conception that growing up means putting yourself in a position where everyone who trusts in you and your vision is at the mercy of a hit driven medium to determine whether or not they continue to apply their expertise and contribute to the artistic environment of video games in the first place
0: Are you happy with the way the Nintendo thing went down? I mean, that was kind of like a a funny dodged bullet, right? Was that kind of the best way that could have played out?
1: The Nintendo thing gave us a point of discussion for a release that could have been pretty quiet. Sure. So did I basically sleep roughly five hours in an 80 hour period? Yes. Was it? Fun uh quotations, question marks, all sorts of punctuation. Kind of. Yeah. I am glad it got resolved. I'm glad people on Nintendo Switch and PC can enjoy the game now. But that's the strange scaffold magic. We get to have an absurd thing like that happen and not destroy the entire studio. Mm-hmm. It gives the people an a window into our wider journey of creativity that is now like seven, eight games long and that you can play and follow and take into your own projects. Mm -hmm. Hopefully building those in a way that is similarly precise and what you need and what your collaborators need to not just make that game, but to keep making games because the best game you'll ever make is always going to be the next one that you build.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You have to keep that excitement going. Um, it's hard to do that if it's a project that you're married to for a decade or whatever, right? So well hey, thank you so much for doing this and and chatting about your philosophies on this stuff and and uh, best of luck with El Paso. I'm excited to play that on Xbox.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I am sorry I went down an existential rabbit hole, but I love video games, and I love giving players fantastic video games and I really wish at every layer of the industry we all had the context and the information to advocate for better video games made more precisely made profitably so we can keep this bastion of creativity games is the place where we have people buying original IP from names that they've never heard of before that no other medium has right now. And they're doing it at mass numbers. And they're paying for it up front instead of it being like a subscription. This set of elements of multiple ways of a project being able to be distributed and sold. That's what everyone wants. That's what film wants back. We had that in the 90s with the VHS market and places like Blockbuster, direct-to-video, theatrical releases. And you saw this range of movies thrive. Everything from Blockbuster releases to these tiny horror movies or these things that can fail in one arena and then take off elsewhere. Games is the one place where that currently exists. And if it falls, there is not a precedent in other mediums of that coming back. So right now, as exhausting as it is, on top of making the most ambitious games of my career with like Team Demon Slayer Society and El Paso elsewhere, I feel like I got to fight for it because individually, the people I speak to at every layer of the medium seem to want it. We just don't have the vocabulary to express why it's necessary and how it, for the business people, it makes money. For the players, it makes better games and more types of games. And for the creatives, it gives you a space to simply choose what type of life you have. Whether it's going to be working on the biggest game for eight years. Some people want that. They should have that. Those are games that deserve to exist. It's a miracle that they can And then there's the people who just want to make things in six months and they don't want to have to think about it. They want to make things in six months that deserve to exist and games is the one space that can accommodate it. So let's keep that environment and if anything, make it even more broad, bold and angled towards creating people's best present and future. This isn't a advocation for a better future of video games it's for a bright present that could be even brighter